0: Welcome to the Lifelinks Podcast, a safe place of belonging, where we amp up our mic to openly talk with first-gen Latinas, help break free from cultural barriers, navigate the first-gen vida acá with love of culture and determination to thrive. I'm your host, Consuelo Crosby, and also creator of this content. If you would like to chat more about what you've heard here today then reach out to me through our website at thelinks.com, that's L-N-double-X, or through our Instagram profile at lifelinks. I'd love to listen and engage in whatever you have to say. Hola, chicas, and welcome to our weekly Lifelinks podcast episode on this February 8th, 2023. Did you catch anything different when you started the episode? Notice any different music? No worries, don't back it up, it's all okay. There's more to come throughout today's episode, which is very special as we revel in Black History Month, celebrating the soulful Afro-Latina influence of Cuba. If you recall from last week's Pod Club episode, I gave you some homework to prepare for today. But if you haven't listened to that episode yet, and you still can, or you didn't have time to do the homework, don't worry about it. Sit back, dive into this episode fresh, because it stands alone in the powerful stories and experiences of our featured guest, Mari Marquez, a native Cubana who arrived here in the U.S. alone at seven years old. Through the Peter Pan program, instigated by the U.S. in the 1950s. Now, if you haven't heard of this program, you definitely want to listen today and be blown away by this part of our history that no one talks about, yet has affected so many Latinas here in this country. Mari's story has an amazing rise into her family and career success, benefiting so many other Latinas and infusing her culture everywhere she went. And now, she's found her dream job. Managing the fabulous, soulful Afro-Latina singer, iconic songwriter of music based on the roots of the lukumi traditions. Before there was salsa, before there was New World, before there was even big band in Cuba, there was the culture of the lukumi derived from the Yoruba people of Cuba, Bobby Céspedes. It's Bobi's singing you heard in our intro with her band from her latest album, Mujer y Cantante. Okay. We have more of Bobi lined up for you later in the episode and a special steamy cafecito shout-out for next week's episode. So you want to catch that, because this is a really stunning coffeehouse. But first... Let's learn more about the woman who introduced Bobi to me. We are so grateful to have you with us today, Mari. What an adventurous, powerful life and valuable career you have had. Let's start off with you and your family's story.
1: Okay, I was born in Cuba. I'm a beautiful colonial city. My mother's family, they were entrepreneurs in the city, businessmen successful so comfortably middle class upper middle class my father's family were more humble but well educated his father had died when he was young so he was an orphan etc so these two families very close to both sides of the family lots of cousins in 1959 the cuban revolution succeeded initially middle class supported it my uncles had been a part of it etc but as it moved more towards socialism mm-hmm. and more in conflict with the united states mm-hmm. cubans started to leave who didn't support the government during that period this is interesting because the origins are peter pan Go back to this couple, American couple, who had a school in Havana that served like diplomats, kids, or Cuban, bourgeoisie, their children, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. And they were really involved and connected to people that were interested in working against the revolution, as counter-revolutionaries, against Castro's new regime. But they had children And so the initial idea was around if we could assure that these children would be safe somewhere else, these people would be free to work with CIA operatives and the Cuban counter-revolution to involve them in these efforts. Oh, that was the origin of this. There's a Cuban-American professor, I think she said, Chicago, now University of Chicago, written a book on this. It was a covert program between the CIA and the Catholic Church and particularly this priest in Miami who played a very important role. I think Father Walsh was his name. He was given visa waivers. He was given the ability to just distribute visa waivers to families for their children to be able to be sent to the United States without following the normal visa process, without their parents. So it wasn't like these children were not orphans or anything. They right. did a whole campaign that really scared, and it was very much through the Catholic schools and churches and focused on the Cuban middle class, the ones that were likely to want to get involved in counter revolution and they scared them into thinking that their kids were going to be taken away by the new regime and sent to the Soviet Union. Oh, Lord. So all these parents got scared. They panicked. Yeah. And, you know, it, it hit me much later, particularly like to think about the time because it was shortly, you know, in, in the early 50s, mid-50s, is when the all the atrocities of Stalin... Like, fully coming out.
0: Oh, so, after the war, oh.
1: you know, to really think about the impact, psychological impact, and manipulation of that, that propaganda campaign, the power it had. When I was in Cuba, my school was around the corner, literally around the corner. The back of the school was the back of my house, too. I was walked. <laughs> to the school. I never walked by myself to a school around the corner. And my parents decided to send me and my brother and a cousin to the United States by ourselves, so you can imagine.
0: How old um, were you
1: at that time? I was seven.
0: Oh, you were a baby.
1: Yes. My cousin and I were both seven and my brother was 10. There were 14,000 children who were sent. And this is, I think, from like 63 was 62. We came January 62, January 7th. I to remember that. So the kids would land in Miami and they used these old arm barracks in the Everglades, put all these kids there. If the kids had some family in the States already, they could go to family and they didn't make the effort to connect them with family if they had family, but many kids didn't. And so they would get placed in American foster homes or um, orphanages and Catholic boarding schools and orphanages. So this is early sixties. And this is at the time where orphanages were moving into foster home model. They were moving away from the idea of orphanages to foster home models. Okay. And the orphanages, the kids that were there at yeah. that point were yeah. the so-called hard-to-place kids. Oh. So if you can imagine, yeah, you know, kids, my brother and my cousins, for example, who ended up in an orphanage in Ohio, they were bottom of the totem pole. They had just gone from, like, being part of a very secure family and a prosperous family, etc., cetera, et cetera, to, like, nothing at the bottom of the totem pole in an orphanage. I just know I don't have the stories. They've never shared anything besides that it was rough or, you know, what I could see from the changes afterwards. But I have done other reading and talked to other people who went through that process, and there was a lot of abuse, you know?
0: On babies, Um, on little kids. big
1: big trauma. For me, I was luckier because my cousin and I, we did have an aunt, and so we ended up living with her and a cousin in a teeny place, but at least we were with family. It wasn't Mm -hmm. easy either. You know, no, no not no. easy at all. It's very no. attached to my parents. I was seven years old. You seven. Barely turned. Little. And, but, you know, I, it was better without a doubt. It was sure. a better experience than having ended up in, in one of those schools or foster homes. And there's, you know, a lot of people that have experiences of abuse, both in the schools and in foster home sexual abuse molestation. These were kids that didn't have a lot of power, and frankly, the Catholic Church didn't really step up to take care of them. Other people will talk about the success story of Peter Ban kids, and all power to them. There are some success stories. I don't deny that, that in some way, people feel saved, and they motivated to achieve and have now become you know business leaders and successful politicians but I just want to speak to the truth of the trauma and that that was an incident of such great manipulation by both sides both sides Mm. because Castro used it to separate part of like this Destruction of Cuban families that has happened since the revolution, um, and the U- U.S. used it yeah. as part of their anti-communist. So mm-hmm. both sides' responsibility for manipulating families and having children pay the cost of this politics,
0: mm-hmm. um, which is still still happening. It's still happening. Yes, Very much yes, part of the culture. Yes. So did you have any communication with your parents while you were here as a little one? Did your parents follow you?
1: So fortunately, we were, yeah, we were blessed. My parents came four months later. Uh, And then Terry, my cousin's parents, came like a month after that or something. Mm -hmm. And we were all in that little place in Miami (laughs) for, you know, maybe a couple months or something. And then we were relocated to Minneapolis, Minnesota.
0: Because that's so much like Cuba.
1: (laughs) Oh, my God. You know, I joke that it was going from a tropical paradise to the North Pole. My fondest memories of Cuba and what I loved the most was the beach. We would spend a lot of time in the ocean. And I just have the images of the fine sand and the clear water. I just... I loved it. And to end up in the snow, yeah, that was something. <laughs> in 1962, there were not a lot of Latinos at all in Minneapolis, a few Cuban families. And the beauty was that people did support each other and they would get together.
0: Yeah. You know,
1: created a community. And we ended up there because my parents did have friends from their hometown. They had moved to Minneapolis for economic opportunities in the 50s. So it, it was not related to the revolution. So they were already established there.
0: Oh, got it. And
1: this was interesting because what I learned was my parents had wanted to come to California, to Los Angeles, because, <laughs> of course, we were seeing warm weather. <laughs> but they limited the numbers that they could relocate to different areas. So we would have had to wait longer.
0: Oh, my gosh. He Mm.
1: wanted to work. Wow. He's like, where can we go quicker? And Minneapolis was it. His first job was washing dishes. You know, people do what they got to do. My mother, who'd been a teacher in Cuba, but had learned sewing, ended up making drapes for seers. And, you know,
0: just a whole
1: major change in our lives. Besides my cousin's family and mine, there was mm. one other Cuban family in our Catholic school, and we were scholarship kids. And, you know, they would ask us to stand up and, and question oh. our, you know, a whole refugee experience. So it's
0: oh. definitely an experience
1: of being other. And, definitely. Um,
0: Did your family speak English before coming here?
1: My father, to his credit, my father mm. who loved American music loved jazz oh. that that was one of his sources for learning English when he came to the states. He spoke English already, and he's my model for lifelong learner. I can tell you a story about that later, but okay, he got engaged, he went to school all through his life. My beautiful papa <laughs> my mother. Hadn't learned English and, and studied and made an effort and broke spoken English, but not, I mean, she couldn't make herself understood and understand, but she was not fluent.
0: I um, think that's what was- you say in sharing your your parents' experience and what I emphasize a lot on the podcast is that transition story, whether you're coming to the U.S. on your own volition or you're coming out of a need for safety is that you're leaving everything behind.
1: It blows my mind that people think that America is so wonderful, that there's no attachment to what they're leaving, that they would leave their families, their home, the tierra that their people came from, or their people are buried, that all the social connections, that they would leave that all behind just because America is so wonderful. There's no sense at all of the level of profound sacrifice to get here and and recognition of what that means about like why they're so desperate to leave conditions we have helped create.
0: Oh, I think that is another component that a lot of generations after this occurring never learned. I think there's a huge void. I know there's a huge void because it's when I feel like the U.S. was its nastiest, is that uh, kids are not taught past the Cuba revolution. They're not taught past that in grade school. And then it is completely glossed over in any higher education, whether it's high school or college. You never get back to American politics in the 60s and 70s to see the influence and the Horrible contributions, uh, interference, abuse that the U.S. did on the countries that this podcast really speaks to. El Salvador, right. or Nicaragua, you know, the Latin American right. countries, Cuba, the Caribbean, you name it, South America. It's like yes. we have a huge, dirty hand in all of the reason why a lot of younger guests on this podcast whose parents fled it's a good word, fled El Salvador for the same reason, political interference, very horrific, fled for their lives. They are really seeking understanding. The young women are seeking understanding, but the parents are not in a position to share that because of the trauma.
1: Yes. And I just have so much empathy. You know, I had grown up obsessed with Cuba and wanting to go back to Cuba. I never felt disconnected to Cuba.
0: Yeah. In
1: 1979, um, I went back with a group from the diaspora of young people who had left, a lot of them Peter Pan's, who had left because it was their parents' decision and it was like returning home and reconnecting. But coming back, I realized like, oh, I can understand why they can't revisit. I can understand why they can't, like, go back and revisit all that and then have to leave again and have to face that it's not what it was.
0: How was it for you going back in 1979 as a young person to a country that at least you were from? You were seven. Oh, it was
1: life-changing. It was one of the highlights, you know, one of the most important experiences of my life, for sure because it helped me make sense, it validated this connection that I felt. I saw family again and I was struck by how much we were really still alive for them. The obsession with Cuba was about trying to make sense of my life and what had happened to it. So I had been on a journey, I studied political science largely oh, as part of that journey. Uh-huh. Um, So it was very validating and exciting. And the other part of it is that I met other Cuban-Americans who were like me, who weren't fitting into this black-and-white view of Cuba, who were curious, who were wanting to reconnect. To have your mind open to that was radical.
0: Wow. That's actually where I get the name for the podcast, Life Links, the double X for women just because you're in a different location, your DNA does not know you are not in Cuba. And so you're trying to operate in the wrong environment for your DNA because oh, yes. your mind didn't say consciously, this is what we're going to do and this is we're going to have to do it this way. And therefore it leaned on the DNA. The DNA is like, wait, what a minute, Something, something's missing. Something's wrong. Y- you feel disconnected. You feel a fish out of water. Right.
1: Certainly for me, that is. So that's where it's important to connect to that feeling because it can be subtle and you can't disregard it and you can get seduced by all these other things and social media and everything coming your way. And those subtle feelings that are just little seeds of insight or, you know, mm-hmm. trying to tell you something, yeah. uh, little voices, mm-hmm. if, if you like disregard and just dump a bunch of stuff on top of it. You know, there's so much richness you are cutting yourself from and and again, may lead to that misalignment. I can talk about it intellectually, etc. But the whole thing about feeling Cuba, it's visceral and as a child, Even as an adolescent and even as a college student studying from an academic perspective versus from my personal life, the feeling has always been there.
0: If you feel you need to connect with the culture, act on it. it. It is the piece that may be missing because it's part of you and no one can explain it away. You shouldn't explain it away.
1: I would say, again, talking to the young latinas maybe wanting to connect with their parents and finding the parents not wanting to have the conversation one way to connect is through music
0: i like that idea
1: i left political science and kind of yeah. the more straight ahead activist work that that i did in my 20s i learned it was easier to break down the walls yeah. through music and culture that you could use that as a way to connect as human beings and find something in common and ease the conflict and the differences and know that there was something in common you could build on. And so I became much more of a believer in that, and that's where I ended up expanding on after my retirement. I'm a real strong believer in the power of art and artistic expression to open those doors to help us get perspective, learn to empathize, expand our ability to empathize, all that stuff.
0: Yeah, true understanding. True understanding and appreciation. People are more prone to be open-minded to music, new music, unknown music, than they are to people, the people behind it. When you speak of the documentary that uh, you have collaboration with, you spoke of Bobi. Explain to our listeners, Bobi. Bobi is Bobi Cespedes. We have known each other, gosh,
1: 41 years or something. Bobi is singer, songwriter, educator, and a priestess in the Lukumi tradition. Sometimes also referred to as santeria. We, we prefer to refer to it as Lukumi, which is how the people in Cuba, you know, the Lukumi, and those are the descendants, the Afro-Yoruba descendants in Cuba. So she's an elder in the community, and she's a storyteller and has done workshops on the songs and stories. I moved to the Bay Area from New Haven, Connecticut with my daughter's father, who is her nephew. He wanted to create music with Bobby and her brother, who had recently come from Cuba. They're part of this beautiful musical family, Cespedes. They had a musical group and initially started as a trio, the three of them, and then expanded to a whole band that recorded an LP that I was a part of producing like back in 1985 and then three albums and they toured internationally and etc. They were you know I think the hottest Latin band in the Bay Area in their time in the 1980s. It was kind of pre-world music and they didn't fit into the salsa category. It was like before, there was the right category to put them in because <laughs> it was very much based on Cuban music and, and Afro-Cuban music and mm-hmm. um, Afro-Cuban chants and rhythms from the Lucumi uh, and a lot of jazzy elements. So, very distinctive sound, just really powerful. So, we go way back. She was there when my daughter was born. And we was there singing to Yemaya. When I thought about my retirement plan, I had set myself up to be able to continue to consult because I was essentially an internal management consultant and coach and educator and facilitator. I had helped design leadership development programs and taught in them and developed mentoring and coaching programs. And had come into diversity and had developed programs in diversity and inclusion. Lots of stuff that, that was wonderful. That again, very much in alignment with yeah. my values. Yeah. I'm very blessed to say, cause it is a blessing. Not everyone gets to say this, mm. but you know, a very rewarding career. Towards the end, <laughs> I was teaching salsa classes. Why uh, <laughs> didn't we get lunchtime? I'm like, in an engineering organization, and you know, I taught a six-week series on Cuban music, on the roots of salsa, focused on Cuban music during Hispanic Heritage Month. I did it with a lot of passion and love, and got a mm-hmm. lot of rewards for it. But it was like it wasn't coming to me; I wasn't feeling it in my heart. And and I did go through this process, or like this period of crises, where like. Am I getting lazy in my old age? <laughs> if you know me, like you, you kind of recognize that that's a joke because I'm pretty active. <laughs> um, You're
0: nonstop. <laughs> I, I, in a good way. way. No, in a good I'm, way. I'm yeah. better at
1: that, but there is. <laughs> I am fairly driven. And then I just realized, like, it's not what's calling me now. Yeah. I like, I just finally let go. Mm -hmm. And listen to my heart. And Mm -hmm. the music was what was calling me. So I have been Bobby's manager going on, I think going on seven years now. And my first big project was to work with the Smithsonian. We got an invitation to be one of the groups that was there for the inauguration of the African American Museum in September
0: of uh,
1: 2016. And, uh, President Obama was there for the inauguration. And, you know, it was like, wow, it was um, So it was all the coronation, bringing the band down for this. It was beautiful, really memorable. And, Mm -hmm. um, and you know, just been learning the ropes since then. In 2019, we got into the studio and Bobby recorded. Her third album, this one under her own name with her band. And it's all a hundred percent original material. It's the first time she'd done that. In the past, she'd recorded a combination oh. of original material and other.
0: Uh-huh. And
1: it's the album that she feels most expresses her. Yeah. And her music. And I think it's a beautiful, beautiful album. I'm very proud of it. There's this whole beautiful mythology that are the ways that the culture teaches, principles by which to live on, and those are very much a part of her music.
0: What is the name of her third album again?
1: Mujer y Cantante. (laughs) Oh. And that's available through our website too, and it's also on Amazon. It's on Spotify, etc., but if you're interested in the disc itself. We did print the CD.
0: Okay. Let's play some of Bobby's third album here. This song is called El Choco Choco. I think her music is, yeah, it's soulful. It's moving. I find it very sexy. I definitely step into another being just listening to it. Bobby's music, for me, reaches a place, like you say, it reaches a place really deep that I mm-hmm. thrive at. That is my person. And that is really difficult for me to access here, here in the U.S., and you're doing an immense gift back to humanity by being that bridge for Bobi, especially during COVID. And now, globally, where you can bring her classes to people and people need these classes for healing. And that is as much value because that may never have happened for a lot of reasons.
1: Does have a really distinctive sound part of the power comes from that integration for her because she is Mm -hmm. priestess, Mm -hmm. teacher, singer, songwriter and she brings that all to her work. We did an interview with her for um, this virtual arts program and one of the things I still remember from that interview is her talking about, I've lived one life. You know, she says, I've linked one life and i'm like say, that's it. exactly Truly. and i'm humbled by her level of devotion mm-hmm. devotion in the spiritual sense mm-hmm. and so everything that she does is integrated and in alignment with that and yeah. and it's really powerful and part of what she's doing through her music is teaching sharing certain principles celebrating the heritage and also kind of sharing how do you live that on a day-to-day. So we're working now on expanding what we do virtually. We have had the song classes going for more than two years now. Wow. The rhythms, I mean, sounds like you, you dig, you're going to get back to the rhythms that come from these music. And lots of references, musical references Mm. to these chants, these songs. So the chants and the songs are to the... The Orishas, and the way I explain it, they are expressions of the divine. They are natural in nature, the expressions of the divine. There is Olodumare, the supreme being. So there is this one God supreme being, but they are... You know, I think of them as divinities or avatars that express the forces of nature. Mm. So, Yemaya yeah, yeah is the ocean and, and represents motherhood, and Oshun is the river, and represents the sweet water, but also represents all of civilization and the work associated, like cities grow next to rivers, right? Yeah. So, you know... Without getting deeper into that, they represent divine forces, and so integral to the religion is a recognition that nature is divine and to be respected and praised, etc. So it's a very rich tradition, and, and all these Aishas have songs and dances and rhythms that are associated with them, that oh, are played and to, oh. to both trace and to call on them.
0: Are these classes that anybody can sign up for?
1: Yes, absolutely. And you can find them on our website. So it's bobecespedes.com and it's B-O-B-I c-e-s-p-e-d-e-s dot com. And if you go to our website, there is something at the top to online song classes and you can click on that and then see the List of classes. It is particularly of interest to uh, practitioners, um, but other people, dancers, musicians, or you know, people interested yeah. in this traditional culture who want to just spend time, like singing to the oh, sure. goddess, you know, the mother, singing to the great healer. So I facilitate the the classes, you know, on the chat, and then uh, we've got people. Then Bobby Studio, the musicians. Okay. So it's Bobby and and two drummers. Um. Well, actually, one drummer, a percussionist, and they both sing. Again, mm-hmm. alignment. How do you create alignment? Part of it, you know, it is that consciousness of creating alignment in your values, but gotta feed yourself. How do you? How do you provide that nourishment for your heart and your spirit? And singing is one of those ways. And and it's a way to heal, too. It
0: would almost be meditative, it sounds like. Because it detaches you from your brain. The brain is not meant to guide us. Your soul, your spirit, your heart, they know. They know what you should be doing. Your brain facilitates what they're telling you to do, but your brain is not what makes your choices. The brain is not going to heal you. You have to heal the brain. You have to shut it off in order to heal the brain. You know, they say that even the best healing, obviously, is while you sleep. Well, your brain is not doing the thinking while you're asleep. You really need to put it aside so I can see this. These song classes must be just joyfully refreshing and healing. And like you say, filling back the vessel of your soul that is getting drained in your every day for yourself and for others. You really need a source to come back and refill so that you can keep being you, right? Keep doing Absolutely. what brings you joy.
1: Absolutely.
0: Yes. Beautiful. Beautiful. I'll make sure to add that information into our show notes. That is the description of every episode of whatever streaming platform you use, and the article that is the synopsis of this episode, and we'll have that up on our website at thelinks.com. That's L N X, So people can sign up for these virtual classes and join in Bobby's songs, chants to the Orishas, and learn the traditions of the Lukumi.
1: Also, in this stage of my life, what gives me meaning that is of service, a broader service. Yeah. And it could be, you know, certainly with Bobby, it's both family that pulls me, Bobby as an artist and as my best, you know, one of my best friends and my sister, all those things she <laughs> is. And at the same time, this commitment to like, this has been an oral culture And she was born to this. It wasn't something she learned in college, you know, through the academy.
0: You speak of having a very lifelong love of music and dance. And you spoke earlier of your father and his learning English language through music. What was his love of music and how did that affect you?
1: My papa, I think he just loved music naturally. So my father was into Benny Goodman. That's how Benny More got his name. And some of my earliest memories of my father, he had a record player, you know, Louis from the 50s, by his bedside in our home. And I still remember particularly the albums by The Platters and Johnny Mathis. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I have that memory of him from very early on.
0: Did you sit there and um, listen to the music with him? Yeah, I made an impression. Mm-hmm.
1: And my uncle had an appliance and record store. They had a part that sold records and had the little rooms in the 50s. You mm-hmm. could like go into these little side rooms to listen to the album. And I remember going there and how cool it was yeah. to you know listen. So. You know, music was around me. You know, I have real clear memory of like going through the albums and looking at them, and liking particular album covers by Orquesta Aragon and Benny More and Trio Matamoros—all these classics, right? Mm-hmm. And particular songs that just really touched me in some mysterious way. That's my connection to Cuba. Once I left Cuba was very much grounded in music.
0: Mhm. Right. Spoke to your soul, kept you connected.
1: That was that visceral part. The way that music could like touch this very deep, profound
0: place. Mm-hmm. Okay. Actually, only now I realize you have always been immersed in music from your childhood in Cuba. And love of your papa you are truly blessed and we are so grateful for you finding your way back to the music with Bobi Cespedes, her band and the passing on of the Lukumi culture? culture and spiritual chants to the Orishas. So we'll have all the information that you shared with us um, Bobi's information and the website information that will be in the show notes in the episode so they can click through to the link. And then we also have an an article to summarize uh, what you were talking about here so people can get access to the the websites, perhaps join the song classes, uh, listen to the music.
1: I said thank you.
0: I'm so grateful to have you here on the episode telling us so much information that I doubt very many people know, especially the younger people, but we lived it. I lived it from here and I had never heard any of this until I met you, until we had that one day you even shared it. It's just necessary and it fills a very big void in our understanding of Cuba and the people and even the current situation. So I really appreciate you sharing and the time you've offered here today. Thank you so much. Thank
1: you. (laughs) Thank you for having me. That was so much fun. It's (laughs) easy to talk to you. You're going to have quite a task editing this down.
0: Right. But I absolutely love what I do here on the Lifelinks podcast. And I am the one blessed for this opportunity to learn from all the vivacious and intelligent Latinas that kindly share their time with me. Their stories are so unique, so individual and enlightening that I really want to expand to more women, more stories, so our narrative gets larger and larger across the globe. Remember to listen in next week for our Pod Club episode on what you heard here today and further celebrating Black History Month as we dive further into the contributions of Afro-Latina singers and songwriters. And a special shout-out next Wednesday, just like I reminded, to a unique cafecito place that has graciously come to Oakland. I first caught them in San Francisco, and just now this week, they opened in Oakland. You may have caught it on our Instagram stories already, so keep an eye out. I'll give you a hint. It's a Yemeni coffee house. And it is so beautiful and smells so good. And we haven't even gotten to the desserts yet, let alone the cafecito. To our listeners, thank you so much for engaging in this community, lending your support and reinforcing our narrative in our own words, in our own time. Thank you for subscribing to this podcast and sharing it with your friends to keep us growing and providing for more women to share their stories. I honestly feel we need a daily show. Wouldn't you just love to hear these stories every day? Because honestly, every other week and me taking a couple of breaks, we only get to like 20, 25 women a year. And that is not enough. Not enough to cover the brilliance of the Latina comunidad everywhere in the world. Let's make that happen together. Step into your truth, ladies. Ciao.
1: Really appreciate the time
0: you take to rate and review the podcast. Get the backstory and what you've heard here today and reach out to us at thelinks.com. That's X. Because it's about time, it's about us. Stay in the groove on our social media at Life Links and get ready to make your move, ladies. Viva!